You can have a seat. Good morning. Uh, welcome again. Uh, it is a joy to be with you, a joy to have you with us. Uh, we say here often at Midtown uh, that uh, we don't believe that this morning what you've chosen to do is that you've, you haven't chosen to come to church. Uh, I know that uh, is somewhat true, but uh, at the deeper level, what we actually believe is that if you belong to Jesus this morning, we've talked about this uh, a lot over the last several weeks, if you belong to Jesus this morning, you are the church. Um, you, you, you inhabit the spirit of the living God, and so you actually brought the church into this room. This room became sacred uh, because this is where uh, the church has gathered this morning. So thank you for bringing the church into this room that we might gather and be together, um, worship and hear, um, fellowship, uh, and, and know uh, the living Jesus together. So uh, we are beginning a new series this, uh, this morning that will last us the spring semester. We are... Uh, going to be in this, yeah, for the next, gosh, probably maybe till the end of May-ish. I don't know if the final date has been set yet, but for the next several months, we will be studying um, this life of Jesus together. We debated as pastors across our movement way too much what to call this series. Um, My vote lost. I just need to say that. Um, Mine was way better. I'm kidding. Uh, It's great. We're calling this series uh, Being Curious in Search of the Real Jesus, inspired by Ted Lasso's uh, Let's Be Curious, Not Judgmental. Um, And so we are going to be curious together. We're going to seek out the real Jesus together. Who is this Jesus that the gospel accounts present to us? Who is this Jesus uh, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as he encounters people? But here's what we need to know as we are being curious together, uh, as we are exploring who is this Jesus, what is is this news that he came to announce, and and what was he like, and what was he about, and what, what did his work accomplish, and what was his mission, and how did he interact with people we're going to be curious about. There's a lot to walk through. There's a lot to explore. But here's what we need to know kind of before we start the series is that the person of Jesus is a mystery. And I don't say that because he's unknowable. I say that because uh, we will never plumb out the depths. We will never seek out all the depths that there is to seek out and explore together as we seek out this Jesus. That he's a paradox. Like he's fully God and fully man. That doesn't make sense. And things that are true rarely make sense. And so there's this uh, searching after who is this Jesus, but I want us to be careful before we are curious together about this Jesus as if we would be so ludicrous to announce that we would get to the end of May and we would go, man, kind of, we figured out Jesus. Like we did 15 weeks of Jesus uh, encounters and we got it. Like there's nothing left to explore. Actually, the hope is, is that the deeper we go in, we would find just how far beyond us he is while at the same time being ever more close than you ever dared imagine. At the same time, the paradox and the mystery of that, he's always beyond our comprehension, and yet he is always calling us to explore it more fully that we might know how near to us he actually is. So we're gonna be exploring Jesus, this living Jesus. We're gonna get curious about him. He doesn't always do what we want him to do. His plans are not always what we wish they were. Actually, what he wants for our life is not always what we want for our life. He doesn't always have the same goals. He doesn't always have the same objectives that I have. And how I wish he would arrange the storyline and circumstances of my life is not always how he does it. And so there's like, there's, I hope you feel in this curious exploration of Jesus this spring, uh, you might get angry. You might be comforted. And you might be uh, uh, blown away at the wonder of, of this, of this God-man Jesus. And all that comes in between, we're going to be curious as we explore this Jesus together. 
So we're beginning uh, that journey this morning, and we simply this morning are not looking at an encounter with Jesus per se. Most of the other weeks will be an encounter with Jesus, human beings that had actual encounters with Jesus in the Gospels. But today we're just asking this question, who is this Jesus? And there's no better way uh, to explore that question than by going to uh, the longest intro or summary of Jesus uh, in the Bible, which is John chapter 1. John chapter 1 is incredibly dense. Uh, it is, it is um, potentially the most dense uh, section of Scripture that there is. John 1, 1 through 18. There may not be anything more dense in Scripture. Uh, I've compared it before uh, to watching Godzilla play hopscotch. Uh, that it's just every line is just this like the whole earth is shaking when you read every line of this, that there's this like these ultimate realities, these cosmic truths that John is saying about Jesus. And he just, he doesn't really leave time or room for you to kind of process what he just said before he's moving on to the next thing. And he's weaving this tail, he's weaving this thread between all that he's saying in these 18 verses in the person of Jesus. He's, he's over here and he's over here and he's this, he's this ultimate reality, he's this ultimate reality, he's pre-existent and he's eternal and he's near to you and he's got flesh on and, and it's like, whoa, I can't keep up with all this and here is your Jesus. So we're going to read all of John 1 through 18, but we're really going to focus on one verse, kind of a summary verse. So let me read it for us, this hopscotch, uh, this cosmic hopscotch, and um, then we'll study it together. So John 1, 1 through 18, the prologue to the book of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, okay, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. It's the word of the Lord. So, the enormity of this passage, the Godzilla hopscotching between ultimate realities, nothing that was made was not made through him. He is the light of men, and John the Baptist, that's who that John is referring to right there, John the Baptist says about Jesus, he is greater than me, he who, uh, what, 
came before me is greater than me because he was before me, meaning he was pre-existent. He existed before John the Baptist was born, even though he was born after him. So we're dealing with like these incredible, like what, what kind of time space tenant movie are we talking about? Like this is, this is enormous to try to figure out what John's doing. So there's, there's a helpful, uh, really thesis of this whole passage is one verse. It kind of holds all of it together, and you can kind of get anywhere in the passage through this one verse. So will you throw verse 14 back up there for me, Leah? Verse 14 is our, is our key verse in the entire prologue, and we're going to camp here. Um, and we might jump around a little bit, but we're, we're, we're camping here. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Okay, this one verse, three parts. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Okay, first part. And the word became flesh. What in the world does that mean? Well, what's the word and why does the word matter? Daryl alluded to it in our um, call to worship but here's what we know in John in chapter 1, when, in the book of John chapter 1, when John uses the word word, when he says the word, he's talking about a person. Verse 1 says this. Throw verse 1 up there if you can real quickly. I know I'm hopping back. We're coming back to verse 14 real quick. But this tells us who the word is. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Okay, so at the Greek grammar level, grammar matters immensely in that sentence. We're not going to break down the grammar. Don't get lost in the grammar because here's one thing that we just were told about the word, which is a person. The word was fully God. Who is this word? Make no mistake about it. John chapter 1 is telling you the word was God. The word, which we find out later, is Jesus in his very nature is God. So this mysterious being, which is called the word, is also equal with God. Okay, so we get a lot of Trinitarian uh, realities going on just in the first verse. We're not going to explain the Trinity this morning. It's here, but we're talking about mega, ultra, cosmic things. But John's talking about Jesus in verse 1. In the beginning, the, in the Word was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Okay, John, that's confusing language that you're personifying this thing called the Word with the person of Jesus. Why didn't you, John, in your opening line just say this? In the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. We may not fully understand the Trinity, but that would have been a lot clearer, right? Like, why did you have to get all mystic and, call and personify this thing called the Word that really later you're going to tell us, well, the Word was Jesus. I could have told you that in verse 1. Why did you say that? Here's why John didn't just say, in the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. It's because John is a better writer than you. <laughs> and me. But John is telling us something deep about Jesus. He says, Jesus is God's word. It's a big deal. The Greek word there is logos or logos. And there's a lot going on when Jesus, when, when John says Jesus was the logos or the logos, when the logos was in the beginning and the logos was with God and the logos was God. He's saying a lot of things. In fact, a lot of scholars would say John choosing to use that word, logos, to compare it to Jesus, say Jesus is the logos, he is literally bringing in like a millennia of Jewish philosophy and about 400 years of Greek philosophy into one word. And he's saying whether you're a Jew or a Greek and you're reading this letter, which those are the only readers of John's letter, 
whether or not you come from a Jewish background or a Greek background, what your theology or your worldview or your philosophy is, I'm telling you that it all culminates in this person, Jesus. That he is everything you've been seeking for. So there's a lot going on at like the philosophy level in John's context, but we're not gonna unpack all that. That's one of Godzilla's hopscotches, okay? We're not gonna unpack all that. Like how is he the culmination of all Jewish and Greek philosophy? We're not talking about that. Here's what we do need to understand is that Jesus is the word of God. And so the simplest reading of logos, logos is just a word that at its basic level means words, speech, speaking, talking. That's what that word logos actually means at the simplest level. Without all the background of Jewish and Greek philosophy, Jesus is God speaking. That's what that opening line is saying. That's one of the things it's saying. It's very important for us to understand. Why is it important that Jesus is God speaking? How do you get to know people? Like what's the primary way that you and I engage in relationship with other people? I took communication classes in college. I know there's like 90% of all communication is nonverbal, kind of. Okay, like that's that's like somewhat true. But here's how you get to, here's how you engage in relationship with other people. You speak and they speak. Words is how you get to know people. That if words are how you and I get to know people, if words are the primary means to an intimate relationship, John here is saying one very exclusive, um, one very um, uh, uh, necessary reality about Jesus. If you want to really and truly know who God is, you have to get to know Jesus. It's through God's word. If I ask you to poke your head outside or just walk outside for just a second and find someone walking across the street, walking to Frothy, okay, or walking to wherever. Where did you go this morning on this street? Anybody go, some, anybody go to Buttermilk this morning? No, we need to go to Buttermilk. Support them, okay? Um, they're good neighbors to us. It's better than Frothy, okay? Um, <laughs> this service isn't recorded, I hope. But uh, if I just asked you to poke your head outside and observe someone across the street, Don't talk to them, just observe them across the street and then come back inside and tell the room what you learned about that person. You could tell us a lot of true things about that person. You could tell us what they were wearing. You could tell us how hipster they were trying to be. You could tell us what what color their skin was, what color their hair was. You could maybe even tell us a few things about their age or their demographic. Like you could tell us true realities about that person simply by looking at them. But if I asked you, hey, come back in and tell us what they loved. Tell us what their personality was like. Tell us who they really were as a person. You couldn't do that because you hadn't heard them say anything. And words reveal a person. Who a person is, what they're really like. Words reveal, words display what someone is truly like. And that same distinction is really true about the being known as the Trinitarian Godhead. There's a lot you can know about God that are true things about God, even if you haven't heard him speak. You can observe a whole bunch of things about him just from looking at certain, certain things about him. You could study creation. You could study the world. You could study human beings who were made in his image. You could reason, actually use logic and use reason. You could use history. You could learn a lot of things about God. Same if you poked your head out and looked at someone walking down the street. You could learn some true things about him. But you can't know who God truly is apart from Jesus. Why not? Because Jesus is God speaking. 
If you really want to get to know someone, you have to hear them speak to you. You have to hear their words. Jesus is God's spoken word to the world and to us. Hebrews chapter 1 says, In the former days, God spoke to us through many prophets, but in the latter days, he has spoken to us through his son, Jesus. This, this is like God used to speak through a lot of different ways, but he's kind of funneled all of that into the logos, into the person of Jesus. And he said, if you want to know what I'm truly like, if you want to hear me speaking, you have to get to know my words. My logos, my speaking, my conversation is Jesus. Do you want to really get to know the being of God? Do you want to know what he's really like? Do you want to know what he loves? Do you want to know what he's about? Do you want to know what his mission is? Do you want to know what he cares about? Do you want to know what, what, what breaks his heart? You have to get to know his words. It's Jesus. Jesus is God's word. So in this semester of being curious, getting to know the real Jesus, if you'll join us this semester, I would ask this question at first. Do you want to know who God really is? And I, and I, I got to be honest with you, I'm not going to presume that you do. Maybe you do. Maybe that's why you're here. But I think that it, it's, um, it's naive to think uh, that everyone in here has this insatiable quest to go, hey, I really, really, really want to know who this God is. I'm like dying to know who this God is. I think on a deep existential level, we're, we're all asking that question. But I don't know that you came in here saying, man, I've, just, I've got all these questions about God and give me the path and I, I can't wait to explore what this God is like. Here's what the Bible says about the God of the Bible, though. If you want to get to know him, he's spoken to you. And he's spoken to you in the person of Jesus. Jesus is God's logos. But maybe even deeper than that, this is why this John chapter 1 is so, it, 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 it's devastating in, in, in the most beautiful sense. And I hope it, it punches. Here's what John 1.1 is saying and John 1.14 when it says the word made flesh. Because Jesus is God's word, let me tell you what this means about the God who sent Jesus. He wants to be known by you. That even if you're not coming in here dying to get to know him, the fact that he sent Jesus as his speaking to the world, it means that he longs to be known by you, which means this, God moved first in the relationship. God is the prime mover, as theologians would call him. You didn't come in here seeking after God of your own volition. That God is the one who seeks first. He spoke first. When, you know when there's like breakdown of relationship? And like there's longing to be reconciliation and it's going to take someone with courage, it's going to take someone with, to, to, uh, to deal with their own shame and their fear and their anxiety about the broke down relationship. It takes someone to restore relationship to speak first. And here's what I'm telling you, God has already spoken. God is speaking because he wants to be in relationship with you. You don't have to go knock down his door to get him to show you who he really is. Jesus is God's logos. He is the prime mover. He's spoken. He wants to be known by you. So if Jesus is the word of God, and Jesus is the logos, Jesus is God speaking, now look at what verse 14 says about that logos. Verse 14, throw that back up if you can, Leah. Leah's working overtime today. Verse 14 says that the word, God himself, put on flesh and dwelt among us. Okay, that word dwelt is kind of like a biblical Easter egg. You know, like in Pixar movies or whatever, or Marvel movies where it's like, oh, there's a little like, that's, that, wait, 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 that's tying to something way over here in this whole other metaverse. Like this is, this is, this is, wait, 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 he's connecting something here. 
when, G- when John says that the word put on flesh and dwelt among us, any Old Testament uh, Jew, anybody who understood the, the story of God from the Old Testament up until the New Testament, they would have read that word and they would go, whoa, 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 whoa. What word did you just use? How's, wait, that, that, is, that is pulling with it like semi-trucks worth of meaning, that one word. Because the literal Greek word of that, translated into English, means this. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And so anybody reading that would have gone, wait, wait, tabernacled? That's not a common verb. So let's figure out what the heck that means. Where is that coming from? If we zoom way back and then go all the way back almost to the beginning of the Old Testament, the second book in the Old Testament, Exodus. Moses, who's led God's people out of slavery in Egypt, crosses the Red Sea, they get to Mount Sinai, and Moses goes up on Mount Sinai's peak and gets the Ten Commandments. He also gets instructions for how to build the tabernacle because the tabernacle was to be God's dwelling place among his people. So Moses comes down the mountain, they build this tabernacle to the exact specifications, they build it, and then they have this huge ceremony at the end of the book of Exodus. And they're gathered around, they've, they've got the Ten Commandments and God has rescued them from Egypt and they're getting to know this crazy God, Yahweh, who's doing all this stuff. And they're going, okay, we built your home, we built the tabernacle and they have this ceremony. And then it says that the spirit and the presence of the living God descended among them. It tabernacled itself in the tabernacle. The presence of God came down and dwelt. It's, I mean, imagining it, it would be a fun like redeemed imagination game to play. Like what was that like when they watched God's presence descend down into this place in the tabernacle? And it was said, God has tabernacled among us. He has come to dwell among us. Okay, so it's this mobile house of God is the tabernacle. The God, God's people then make it to the promised land. They're bringing the tabernacle with them as they go and resetting it up. And they get to the promised land. They set up the tabernacle. There's kind of messy. There's some, there's some bad stuff that goes on, time of the judges. And then we get to some kingdom years. Saul, David, Solomon, Solomon, King Solomon. Solomon says, it's time that God doesn't have a, like a leather tent to live in. Let's build our God a palace. Let's upgrade him from a tabernacle to a temple. And King Solomon spends like $11 quadrillion building this temple for God. That's not an exact number. But he spends a lot of money building this temple for for God. And he builds it to the exact specifications of the tabernacle in the Old Testament, except instead of being like wood stakes, it's gold. And so he builds this grand permanent home for God in, in Jerusalem on top of the mountain called the temple of God. And guess what they do after they build the temple? They have the same exact ceremony that they had in the desert for the tabernacle. And they all stand around and Solomon prays and they go, God, we we built this house for you. This is your home, the holy of holies inside this temple. We want you to come and dwell here, to live here, to be among your people. And God has a Shekinah glory moment, a, a, a moment of God coming down to descend and dwell. Again, an amazing scene to imagine. God tabernacles among them again, a second time. And then it gets ugly. Hundreds of years go by, it's devastating. The kingdom splits, there's a laundry list of atrocious kings, all kinds of idolatry and rebellion, until finally the people of God are taken into exile in Babylon, and the temple gets destroyed. The dwelling place, the tabernacling place of the living God gets decimated, gets plundered for its gold. They're in Babylon captivity, 
Babylonian captivity, and Ezra uh, leads the rebuilding effort of the temple. He comes back to Jerusalem out of captivity to rebuild the temple. We studied Nehemiah last fall. It's all in the same uh, time frame. And they rebuild this temple, and they're so sorry for what they did. They're so sorry for how their rebellion caused the, the, the destruction of the temple the first time around. And so they put, to their, they put to work, they rebuild the temple, and what do you think they do? They have an enormous ceremony. It's already happened twice. Moses in the wilderness, God tabernacles, God Shekinah glory comes down. And then the temple with Solomon, they have this huge ceremony. God comes down, he descends again and dwells in the temple. And then they do this for a third time. Ezra and Zerubbabel and all these people are gathered around this finished temple and they're going, God, we know we've, we've royally screwed up. We're asking you to come and dwell among us again. And they have this huge ceremony and nothing happens. There is no moment of the glory of the Lord filling the Holy of Holies. There's no moment of Shekinah glory coming down. There is no tabernacling of God amongst the people. And the people are devastated. Surely God has abandoned us. Surely God has given up on us. He already came to dwell. He already came to tabernacle twice, and we screwed it up. We deserve him to abandon us. We deserve him to not be among us. And they're waiting and waiting and waiting for God to come and dwell among them again, and it's silent. 400 years of silence. And into that 400 years of silence, into the failed attempt to get God to tabernacle among them again, John, the author, John chapter one, says in verse 14, this word who was God has come and he has tabernacled among you. The word of God, fully of the glory of the Lord, the Logos, the second member of the Trinity, has come to dwell among us. This is the fulfillment not just of prophecy, but of longing. They were desperate for God to come and tabernacle among them again. And John 1.14 says he has in the person of Jesus. And he's not contained to this little holy of holies anymore. He's here among you with skin on to be known by you. So what does this tell you about this God, about this word made flesh who's tabernacling? Why does it matter that God in the person of Jesus tabernacled among his people? Well, as much as the temple and the tabernacle were God's dwelling places, the Shekinah glory of the presence of God, they also, the, temp, the temple and the tabernacle also represented something else about their religious life. It wasn't just that God has come to dwell there. The temple and the tabernacle represented all that the people must do in order to have and be in relationship with the God who's dwelling there. Every week, every day, every year, there were sacrifices that must be done, there were cleansing, there were, there were religious ceremonies, there were rituals. They had to clean themselves up by the blood of sacrificial animals and by cleansing and by washing and by ceremony and by, by uh, religious uh, um, practices regularly uh, completed in order to be clean enough to enter the temple courts. And the Bible is very clear about this, that the people who had to do all this work necessary to be in right relationship with God in the Old Testament the Bible's very clear about this. The people of God knew all along it wasn't enough to actually relieve their consciences. Like it wasn't enough to actually save them. They needed more than just a sacrificial system. They needed more than a ritual system. They needed more than ceremonies. They needed more than shadows and whispers of, of reality. They needed the real thing. 
They didn't need the hope of a future salvation. They needed salvation. They didn't need more laws to follow. They didn't need more uh, activities to do. They didn't need more ceremonies to practice. They needed a Messiah who would come and be a greater Moses and actually deliver them permanently. So tabernacle represented certainly the, the dwelling place of God. It also represented all that they must do in order to be in right relationship with God. And so when, God, or when John says in John chapter 1 that Jesus has tabernacled among you, it's way more than just he's come to dwell with you. It's saying something about this whole Old Testament system that has led up to this moment. There's a police call from a few years ago. I heard it at the, I heard some, a, a speaker played it at this fundraiser I was at one time. And it's, it's, it's a chilling police call that's recorded. It's from like rural Oregon somewhere. And a woman is home alone um, in the dark on a Saturday night. And a man starts to tear his way into her home. And she knows him. She, says, she tells the 911 operator, like, I know who this man is. He's broken him before and assaulted me before. And she's so terrified, she picks up the phone and she does what any of us do. She calls 911. And she's like whispering on the phone and she's in her closet locked in. She can hear him breaking in downstairs. And she calls 911 and I'm not, I'm not making this up. The operator tells her, because of budget cuts in her county, law enforcement doesn't work on the weekends. And so she's pleading, she's screaming like in a whisper, chilling, terrorizing moment, please send someone. I I can't, I don't have anything to do. And the dispatcher says, is there any way you could safely leave the residence? She says, no, he's blocking pretty much my only way out. And then this is what the operator says. And I'm not judging the operator for this. I'm just trying to, to get us to feel the intensity of this moment. She says this, well, the only thing I can do then is give you some advice. I cannot send you someone to help you. I can give you some advice. She says, the only advice I can give you is tomorrow to call the sheriff's office because no one is working right now. I don't have anybody to send. It's awful. It's terrorizing. But here's why I tell you that horrific story. Is do you know the terror of crying out for help and having the responder respond to you and saying, I have some advice for you. Do you know the terror of crying out and having no one actually step into your reality? That terror starts to get at the hint of what the Jewish people were feeling in that 400 years of silence. We have been crying out for God for centuries and no one is coming to help. He has not filled the temple. He has not come to dwell among us again. He is not here. There is no one to come and save us. In essence, they knew they needed more than advice. They knew they had a history of failing, of crying out, of rebelling, and living in their sin. They knew they needed more than advice. And John just told us in John chapter 1 that the word made flesh, Jesus, has tabernacled among you, which means this, the prime mover God has come to you. And here's what he didn't show up with. If all that God wanted to send you was advice, he would have sent a book. But he sent a person named Jesus. 
He has come and tabernacled among us. He has come to dwell among us, which means because he made the first move, because he came to us, he has come to end religion because religion could not take us to him. And instead of us reaching for our God, the word made flesh is the declaration that God has reached for you. That is the word made flesh who has tabernacled among us. Romans chapter 10 says that Jesus Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for all who believe. Meaning all of those religious ceremonies, all of those, all that the tabernacle and the temple represented, the civil and the religious ceremonies that those systems represented in the tabernacle and the temple, and when Jesus, it basically says in John chapter one, Jesus is the new temple, and he has decimated the need to work your way, perform your way, get advice for your way up to him. The tabernacling of Jesus means that God, the prime mover, has come to you. That's why John uses that one word, dwelt tabernacled it's all in there remember Godzilla playing hopscotch like this is this is enormous that it says wait wait wait. Jesus is the end of all of that Jesus is ending all of those systems that our entire nation and our entire religious uh, sense of self was built on it's over in the person of Jesus the word became flesh and tabernacled among us two enormous statements Jesus is God's word Jesus, the Logos, has tabernacled among us. And then John tells us this. Last part of verse 14. He says, what happens when you get a glimpse of this real Jesus, if you understand that he's God with skin on, or as Daryl said this week, God with a bod. Uh, If you understand that he's God with skin on, that he's come to be known by you, he's come to tabernacle among us, He's pursued us as the prime mover. Here's what he says at the end of verse 14. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Let me summarize what John just said in that last part of verse 14. If you see Jesus, the logos of God, who's tabernacled among us, then you have seen the glory of the Lord. If you've seen Jesus for who he really is and all that he, that is contained in his infinite self, then you have seen the glory of God. What's glory? Glory, most of all, shines forth in whatever most fully expresses the essence of a being. In other words, glory is the splendor of something on display. And John here says that God is saying to you that if you want to know what a display of his splendor is, a display of what truly represents who he really is, if you want the essence of his being, you want to catch a glimpse of his splendor, look at Jesus. Jesus is the glory of God. He is the splendor of God. The mission, the person, the work, the humiliation, the glorification, the, the, the reality, the resurrection, the ascension, the person of Jesus is the display of the glory of God. Now you might hear that and you go, Jesus is the display of the glory of God. That might make like theological sense to you or might sound accurate biblically. Let me put that let me, let me like take that way down and apply that to what John is actually saying about Jesus. God thinks it glorious to be the kind of God 
who would be humiliated by his creation, be despised and rejected by men, and give his life away for rebels like us. That's glorious to him. The God of the Bible thinks that stooping so low to come and dwell among us, to come after his people, to be the prime mover, to experience all of our pain, to experience all the abandonment we face, and to buy us back, that is a display of his glory. This is the God who will say, you have beheld my glory when you've seen my son, and my son came on a mission to rescue you. That's the definition of who I am. That's my splendor on display. The God who moves, the God who acts, the God who literally interrupts time and space and rearranges history to come and give myself to my people, that's a display of my glory, and my glory is the display of my splendor. What is splendid to him, what displays the majesty of who he actually is, is in the person of Jesus. Which means, let me, let me roll this tape out for you just a little bit, because John is saying this in John 1.14. In God's mind, the cross of shame where Jesus the word is headed is at the same time the throne of his glory. You have got to do business with that. That the display of the glory of God would be him hanging naked on crossbeams. That is, he's saying if you see that Jesus, you've seen what God is really like. It has all kinds of implications for our lives and what it means for our salvation and our justification and our redemption, all that. But here's what he just said in John 1.14. When you've seen Jesus, you've seen my glory. And where is this Jesus headed? That's the kind of God you're dealing with. That the cross would display the splendor of who he really is. The word of God made flesh has come to us because we couldn't get to him. And he would say, as you behold this Jesus, you will have seen my glory. This is the mystery and the beauty. This is the complexity and the invitation of this Jesus. Who is this Jesus? So that's what we're gonna look at this spring. Please come to this series with all of your questions. I promise you we will not answer all your questions. But I can promise that every week as we walk through this, this journey of getting to see the real Jesus, we will behold this word who became flesh to dwell among us. And in doing so, we might behold the glory of God. Let's pray. Jesus, we, uh, we're starved for glimpses of glory. And so as we come to your table now, would you um, remind us that this table is a display of your glory. This word made flesh who came to dwell among us, who came to be the end of the law, who came, who came for our sakes. Might we behold Jesus at this table? Might we feast on him? Might we be changed by him? Might we fall more in love with this word made flesh who has come to dwell? We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen.